Hello friends, Patrick McFarlane here of the Liberty Bigly podcast, uh, coming at you with the first podcast episode in quite a while, which I apologize for, but um, I've been meaning to make some Patreon bonus content for my awesome patrons, but I'm so busy, literally like every second of every day is taken up, and um, it's been crazy, so to recap... Like, I don't even know if I recorded an episode. I think the last episode I recorded was when I came back from Christmas um, vacation, I suppose you could say, and I bought a new car. So I think I mentioned that on this podcast, but I wanted to at least get some kind of content out there right before I go to bed tonight. Uh, It's about 9.40, and this is the first second of the day that I've gotten to myself so far. So I wanted to make like a a video for patrons only. I was going to do it this weekend, but I got sick and there was, you know, just, I had probably the busiest week of my entire law practice, my entire legal career last week. And that was just insane. There might have been one or two weeks that was busier, but uh, I've had a few victories in my in the last few weeks. I thought I'd talk about that just a little bit, and if let's see if I really feel like I can talk a whole lot about libertarian stuff, uh, but at least in my professional life, my job... And professional development has taken up. I've just kind of thrown myself into it, which I think is what I really need to do. And I wish that boded better for the podcasting life. <laughs> um, but I, I guess you probably can't blame me because one is much more productive than the other and much more uh, lucrative. So, but the big, so in the last, I don't know, three or four months, I've turned the jets on a bit with my law practice and I've been constantly trying to take more cases and, um, well, you know, confront the challenges that are presented to me and take steps, uh, keep taking steps in the direction that I need to go to get to the place I need to be with my career. So last week, I had probably my biggest, most involved motion hearing. And so to date, I've had two trials, but both of those trials were small claims court, which, you know, a trial is a trial, but small claims court is a bit less involved. Uh, The cases are a bit more simple. However, my second trial that I had was very involved in terms of legal arguments There was a lot of legal arguing, uh, and it was a hard case. So I think I talked about that on this show. Like, I don't like to go into too much of the details in terms of singular cases. I suppose it's all public record, but, um, kind of, it concerned a towing bill, the second trial, and I thought it was an unjust towing bill, and I had a bunch of legal arguments as to why, It shouldn't be allowed according to the common law, but you see the statute comes in, which is dictated law from the the state, 
And even though the common law had two or three or what I thought, you know, two, three or four reasons why my client shouldn't be saddled with a $5,000 towing bill. Sorry, it was $4,000. It was a towing and storage bill. Um, and this isn't the kind of law that we practice at the firm. It's actually uh, was an ancillary legal problem to a, a personal injury car accident case that we had. So even though I had three or four arguments as to why this towing bill shouldn't be allowed, and because my client got sued by the towing company that towed his truck, and I had you know, all these arguments as to why this towing fee should be thrown out entirely, except the one argument that got me was the statutory argument, which says there's a statute in Wisconsin that says if a police officer is direct directs a towing company to tow your truck because you get into an accident on the highway. And if a police officer comes and orders a towing truck, tow truck driver to tow your truck, there are fees according to statute that the tow truck driver is entitled to. And if you don't pay, he gets a lien on your truck or your vehicle that they tow. And usually towing companies will, if you sign, if you, if your car is totaled, usually towing companies will have you sign the salvage title over to them or sign the title over to them so they can scrap the car and take what they can get. Usually it's like $250 and they'll call the towing and storage fees a wash. Um, but according to statute, they get that interest when the police officer directs them to tow the car. And so even though I had several good reasons as to why my client uh, shouldn't have to pay, one being um, the theories of contract don't apply because my client never consented to the car being towed, um, the police officer just ordered it. And so there's no quantum merit because he didn't expect a benefit, which is a theory. Quantum Merowit is a theory of contract saying that if you appreciated a benefit from someone else, even if there wasn't a contract, there was a contract because um, you appreciated the benefit. And <clears throat> there was, I'm trying to think of the other reasons why I didn't think there was a, there was a contract or anything like that. Um, so, man, I'm really doing a deep dive on this case here. But there was another reason, according to the statute, allows for reasonable towing and storage fees. And these towing fees were completely unreasonable, like over $100 for a, a tow. And let's see, there was, in order to, so if, if the vehicle is towed, and it's probably worth like $750. The If it appears that the vehicle that was towed is worth more than $750, if it's not totaled, then the towing company should do some... Um, they have to have the vehicle appraised, and they should sell it instead of just scrapping it. They're not allowed to scrap it. 
and because they need to mitigate their damages and they should get most the most money possible it's kind of like a, a public policy rule you have a duty to mitigate your damages because we don't just want pure economic waste which would be um demolishing a vehicle and getting scrap value for it when you could sell it and capitalize at least a bit preserve the value because you're only really entitled to your lien amount, which would be the reasonable towing and storage fees. So if you scrap the vehicle without selling it, then you're technically destroying some value of the the owner over and above your lien interest in the truck. So I hope this is it's entertaining, but this is just the le- the legal theories that I was playing with here. And so, like, to illustrate that this was a a pretty damn complicated legal issue for just being a small claims case, and I guess just because the dollar amount is less than $10,000, because the claim was for $4,100 plus court costs, and just because the dollar amount's low doesn't mean the legal theories behind it aren't all involving. But... So so that was interesting, and I ended up, I was the defense attorney, and so I'm told is that when you're a defense attorney in a civil matter, the what you can call a win is a lot, the, the goalposts are moved in terms of what a win means, because if you're a defense attorney and you get the amount reduced that the plaintiff is seeking, that's considered a win. Um, you would think that from maybe a layman's standpoint, if you're a defense attorney and you get the case thrown out completely, that's a win. That's the only win, but it's not the only win. That's maybe like the decisive, decisive victory. But if you get the damages reduced, it's a victory. And I got the damages reduced by $1,500, I think. So that was my winning argument was that, you know, I had argument A, B, C, D, and E, and the judge agreed with all of those arguments except he found, except one of them, and that one was to find that, you know, it was all based on hearsay because the plaintiff only produced a hearsay statement that the police officer directed the vehicle to be towed. Um, but he had found that the police officer directed that and that was enough to create this lien. Although I proved that they didn't, the towing company didn't, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. The towing company didn't capitalize on their lien. They didn't, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They didn't execute it according to the law. So I got a little win. But there's all these, you know, baby, not really baby steps, but there's steps I'm taking in, in wins that I've had. Uh, so that was one that I put in the win column, even though I wanted the whole thing thrown out and I thought I had good reasons to do to get it. Um, but the other win that I had was last week on Thursday, I had a hearing on a Daubert issue. And for those who aren't privy to it, there's this very famous federal case 
um, called, uh, I think it's Daubert v. Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, and it's like a 1992 or 93 Supreme Federal Court case. It might have been a Supreme Court case, um, but it might have been like the, the D.C. Circuit. That's what's standing out to me in my recollection. But basically it adopted a certain standard for the qualifications of expert testimony in cases. So in this Daubert case, um, no one really learns or cares about the facts necessarily in it, but everyone knows the rule, which is to say that, um, and it was codified in a whole bunch of states, and Wisconsin just codified this standard, which the Wisconsin courts took from the federal case and applied it in Wisconsin, which is um, the... If, if an expert is qualified based on their skill, education, experience, or knowledge, their specialized skill, education, experience, or knowledge, and they rely upon sufficient facts or data um, that is widely accepted in the scientific community, and they appropriately applied that's, um, the standard and facts to the case at issue, and if the trier of fact would be aided by this testimony, or this expertise, then the expert is qualified to testify as an expert witness. And there's different things, there's different case law on exactly what an expert, what kinds of, an, of opinions require expert testimony. And um, I just don't have that in front of me, but if it's beyond the the common knowledge, if it's something beyond common knowledge that any person would know in their human experience, then it, it would require expert testimony. Like if I was to give, if I was to testify as to how an injury affected me, that wouldn't require expert testimony because a lot of people would know from experience that they would have of being hurt. You know, it's not, it doesn't require specialized or technical knowledge but if I were to go in and try to explain exactly how my meniscus was torn, for example, and what the healing prognosis is and how the surgery would be performed to correct a torn meniscus, that would be expert, that would be knowledge requiring expert testimony, just for example. So... We had a car accident case that we settled because I won this Daubert hearing. And the specific issue in this hearing was that we had uh, treatments, doctors who were giving treatment, um, who performed treatment on our client. And they were using some techniques to perform this treatment that was not in the mainstream, let's say. It was a little... Uh, it was a little bit osteopathic, uh, maybe a little new agey, was a certain type of new PTSD treatment, and it just hasn't been widely accepted. Well, let's say, because I won the hearing, and one of the requirements is, is that it is widely accepted in the scientific community, um, it was this PTSD treatment and a different kind of... Um, neck or back pain treatment that is also a little bit um, un 
unorthodox, I guess, shall we say, but I was able to go into this hearing and argue that our experts were qualified according to the Daubert standard. And it was, took, I, I had, I wrote a brief on it because we got this challenge and I just completely won this hearing. Like, not only did I win the issue, but I won on every single argument that I made and every point that I asserted to the judge, he agreed with me on. And I worked, I busted my ass on this brief and it felt really good to win. So it's like another step in the right direction. Um, but that's, those are the things, you know, since my show and I guess my brand is talking about legal experience and things like that. So, you know, in a lot of these mechanisms, I really don't, as a libertarian aside, a lot of the mechanisms that are at play that the court uses to do these types of things, I think would look a lot, very, very similar in a libertarian, in a, in a market-based legal system. A lot of these legal theories would remain the same. And I've thought a little bit about the non-aggression principle being framed as, oh, it's too simple. And, um, you know, Andrew Kern was on the, I don't know if Andrew listens to this podcast. I know he listens to the Liberty Weekly podcast, but I was really glad to see him get on, um, or at least have his articles be featured on Dave Smith and have kind of a back and forth with Dave. And a lot of the times I, I don't really think that when Dave reviews an article, at least a libertarian article, there's times when he really hits the nail on the head. But if it gets too complicated, um, I think Dave kind of misses the mark when he goes through and just reads things for the first time. And I know this as experience because I've had experience reading articles for the first time and commenting my thoughts right off the top of my head about them. And sometimes it works when you have, like, really elementary critiques of whatever it is you're talking about. But when something is thought-provoking or um, maybe what the point is not completely clearly illustrated... It's not good for Dave to read these things and comment on them for maybe the first time that he's re reading them. And I thought that might have been the case with Andrew Kern's articles, but there was a, a point that he made, because I know that Andrew Kern, from a libertarian standpoint, or he he's someone in the community that I've seen who is a lot more concerned with anarcho-capitalist legal theory than other people um, that I've encountered. And he's taken uh, what I think is a deeper dive on it than, you know, frankly, probably even myself, because, one, I don't think that Andrew has any kids and he has a lot more time to read about these things. It's an excuse for me for everything. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I do so much actual when I was in law school I did a lot of actual legal studying and it didn't leave me a lot of time to um you know I was so 
and I, I have this problem now, especially in my practice, but I deal with practicing the law every single day. And so functionally, that kind of means that when I get home, I don't necessarily want to do it for fun because I've been doing it all day. But it means that I don't really explore the whole libertarian side of it as often as maybe I'd like to, or maybe I should because, you know, I'm living it. It's, it's my work for me. Um, so I don't necessarily want to be doing it or thinking about that side of the libertarian side of it during my free recreational time. So, oh, I'm, I'm watching a documentary right now. And I, I totally just thought it's just, ah, oh yeah, the, uh, the polar bear just destroyed that seal. I didn't think he was going to get it, but he's ripping it apart right now. That's pretty badass. Um, so yeah, anyways, Kern has brought up, you know, a lot of good points and I think like he's, I don't know if like. I wanted to weigh in, and maybe in this podcast, maybe not, I wanted to weigh in on the whole open-closed borders things, um, because I think both Dave and Andrew kind of missed the mark on this. I do tend to agree with Andrew Kern a bit more. Um, I do see where Dave's coming from in terms of, um, you know, I guess leeching off the system and whatnot, but I know the point that Andrew was trying to make, and he's saying that you know, and it's kind of the things, the critiques he makes of the non-aggression principle, which is where I was initially going with this uh, thought string. But <clears throat> Andrew, man, I'm tired. Andrew was talking about having a free market in arbitration is basically what the ultimate goal is here. And he was also made kind of like a Jeffersonian... Um, what is this, um, a Jeffersonian pools of, I, I forget the, the phrase that he used, but different pools of democracy at work, um, where the, the Jeffersonian idea was that you would have, you know, however many different states and they would be laboratories of democracy. And it's good to have the free movement of peoples because people will move and you would have, you know, competition, because as the states try to attract people who are freely moving between different political units and um, Andrew kind of pushed back on the idea that um, illegal immigrants are consumers of resources and that they bring resources to the table where they bring labor and all this. And so therefore we should support open borders and, you know, you would need more of a police state to enforce these borders. And Dave was saying, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm not supporting a system the way that I would want to control immigration actually wouldn't be authoritarian ways. It would be less, you know, ways that wouldn't build up state power or, you know, the end result of letting these people in would be to grow state power more than I would want to limit it or more than I would want to grow it in trying to keep these people out. And <clears throat> frankly, I, I think none of them have really presented a, a practical answer uh, to the question of what is the libertarian position on borders. And 
I don't think that that Kern's answer of, and I hope I'm not straw manning him, uh, because that would be awful, but I think that his his presentation of open borders in terms of like, well, let's just stop controlling the border at all doesn't necessarily work. It's not feasible. And I know this, maybe this is a bad argument just to say, oh, it doesn't really work. But I, I don't think it's enough to say, well, we'll just have the free movement of people and I'll push back on the notion that this won't have any consequence or or push against the, the concerns that Dave has about changing cultures or demographics or voting habits or um, aggressing against net taxpayers or what have you. And I think Dave kind of ignores you know, he tries to sidestep the issue that what he's really doing would be, um, ingratiating the state in the effort of keeping these people out when what I really think the answer is, and I've talked about this on the show before, but instead of getting into this esoteric, like, uh, gray area argument about net taxpayers and aggressing against what is like really public property held in escrow for net taxpayers who have been stolen from, and it's really their property. And we're going to twist ourselves into, you know, knots trying to figure out who holds public property and who's the rightful owner of it, which I, I don't think there's a real good answer to it's like, okay, well it it was stolen from millions and millions of different people. I don't know how we're going to, figure out who has what kind of ownership interest in the state. It just doesn't work from a legal, I don't see it working at all. You can't trace those, those funds that were stolen from millions of different hundreds of millions of different people over hundreds of years. Oh, you know, who, who does, who owns the state or who owns the public property and how would we divest it back into the net taxpayers? I, I I don't know. I think, I really think it's ludicrous from a practical standpoint, from a legal standpoint in terms of proving damages. Um, I don't even know how you would begin to prove that. I guess maybe a forensic accountant you would have to go through and, and make a workup for every single person who ever paid taxes to the U S government or had their income limited by paying income tax or, or through zoning regulations or what have you, um, they've had their own ownership interests or, or they've lost profits because of the state or, so therefore, you know, you could argue that the people harmed the most have a bigger ownership interest or, or it just doesn't make sense to me. Anyways, the answer is the same answer as it's always been. What do we have with the current, what's the problem with the current immigration situation in the United States? According to people on the right, and I think they have some legitimate concerns, um, although I do think Andrew's arguments are novel in terms of open borders, but I, I, for me it's not completely satisfying from a concern about changes in culture or um, voting demographics that change. Perhaps it may, you know, it might just be temporary as Andrew Kern kind of asserts. 
Um, both of them make good points, but the answer, practically speaking, is the same, is what we have is a, a distorted market that has increased the demand or I don't know. It's increased the volume of people that would like to move to the United States, whether that's been through war or the drug war or the welfare magnet. And what we really need to do is just make it so that the demand for people to come into the country is a natural market function because we have these three or four major things, the war on drugs, the wars abroad, and the welfare magnet primarily. There's other influences, but those are the things that are attracting the most distortionate amount of people to come to the United States and not always for the best reasons. And I think there's other things to that you could do too. Um, I don't know about this sponsorship program, but to decrease state involvement, I think we already know what the answers are, is to continue to fight against the war on drugs, continue to fight against the wars abroad, and continue to fight against the welfare magnet. I don't know, you know, practically speaking, are we, I guess you could say it, we're closer to getting on one level, I want to say we're closer to getting open borders than we are to getting like a very strict uh, border enforcement in terms of like a wall and like a Iron Curtain kind of um, Berlin Wall situation. And I find this to be most satisfying. I one because it's my answer. Um, but two, cause you, I mean, I am for less border regulation, but if you have a more natural influx market of people coming into the country, um, and get rid of the concerns from a rightist standpoint of welfare reliance, um, it makes more sense to me. I'm not sure. I'd be more comfortable with open borders, I guess, if you get rid of those, the war on drugs, the wars abroad, the empire abroad, and the welfare magnet. Um, but then I think you'd also have to get rid of voting, too. So, like, from an ANCAP, from a practical ANCAP standpoint, I don't think that um, the answers really change. You know, we're always pushing for, for the ANCAP position of and those three things, and I don't know. That's kind of what Dave Smith talks about, though, is that, well, we have to end those three things before we can open the border. Um, but the border's not, practically speaking, I, I don't think an open border argument would ever win and ever happen. So, practically, let's just continue focusing on the things that and caps focus on, which are those ending those three things. So that's my spiel about that. And um, maybe it's just like the autistic libertarian thing. It the answer is not really too different um, than probably what Dave and Andrew would agree with, you know. But 
I guess what I'm trying to say is we, this abstract philosophical question of what is the proper libertarian position right here, I, I don't think you really need to get into the minutia of this philosophical, like, principal question that they were trying to answer, which is, um, you know, what is aggression? And because something is publicly owned, does that really mean that means? So for David's Dave's example about a heroin addict shooting up in a public school, um, we need to set what is the proper libertarian position for this? Well, yes, the schools should be privately owned, um, but they're not privately owned, so we should control the policy inside the school while it's still a public school and not be idiots about that. Um, I don't really know that that's a, an answer that really solves the border question. Um, I think the answer remains, well, privatize the school. And, but I don't even know if it's an analogous example. I mean, that, and I, I think in, in Andrew's response article, he didn't really challenge the analogy of it, which I think can be challenged because, um, I kind of want to push back on the notion that, you know, in the, in this analogy that the United States is, is public property because it's, I don't really think it is. It's not public property in the same way that a school is. So I guess maybe it is analogous because it's like, well, in, in the United States, you, you know, you have a police force and you would like that police force to keep, you know, it, you want the police force not to exist, but while they do exist, you would like them to catch rapists and thieves and murderers, um, and perform the things that the private security force would do. But I don't know that you would really want the private... This is the difference, though, is that I don't know that you would really want the private security force to... I mean, you would want them to kick trespassers off of your private property. Um... But that's just the thing is that in, in the analogy that Dave is using, right? Okay, so in the analogy Dave is using of the heroin addict coming into the elementary school, in the private scenario, that heroin addict would be a trespasser. And in the public scenario, I think he kind of dealt with this, wouldn't he? He did. In the private situation, the heroin addict would be a trespasser, so you can kick him out. In the public school situation, he's coming in and doing something that is um, that you don't like, that you're going to kick him out for anyways. Hmm. I'm just kind of, you know, I critique Dave for just thinking through Andrew's paper on the air, and now I'm really... I have played around with his analogy a little bit, but there's something about Dave's analogy with the heroin addict in the public school 
that doesn't sit right with me, and I I don't know what it is. It, there's there's a distinguishable difference within that, and I won't belabor and try and tease it out on air. Maybe make myself look like an idiot, but I'm just too tired. Um. So, but going back, like I really get Andrew's point about how we have polycentric law and the non-aggression principle isn't always to, it's not a solve all for every situation and a cure all for every situation because there's no determination of, for example, like how high a drone will fly above private property before it is aggressing and trespassing against the property owner because you could have four different common law courts and they might come up with four different answers that are acceptable to a certain community. Um, and what we're really going for to solve this immigration problem, if I'm remembering the argument right, is that we need um, to get rid of the monopoly on justice and and have different communities come up with their own rules um, I think that kind of goes along with um, my thoughts about law in general um, and what's really important. forgot where I was going with this, but basically Andrew, like, I think he was, he was trying to tie the immigration question into this polycentric law issue in that, you know, we're kind of in a way we're, we're rejecting the non-aggression principle or rejecting the notion that we can come up with some kind of um, objective legal order that has objectivity, like there's one singular right answer, and that is the non-aggression principle. But in reality, the non-aggression principle is, is relative in of itself because the application of the non-aggression principle to different situations will yield different results based on what your arbiter of law is and what your legal system is. Um, so, and somehow this all ties into what I was talking about with my legal practice. So, yeah, I'm still feeling sick, guys. I, I hope that you've been able to follow this episode a bit um, and that it was interesting. But, so I wanted to... Um, have somewhat of a bonus episode. I didn't get a chance to do it this weekend, but I wanted to get something out there on the horn, at least for those that, because I know a lot of the people who listen to or who are Patreon subscribers will subscribe to have subscribed to this podcast and listen to these episodes. And I wanted to get something out to you. Um, and this is the easiest for me to do it on my phone because of the anchor Dot .fm the anchor app which i love and it makes podcasting so easy and i'm trying to switch the liberty weekly podcast over to anchor so i can just record like this on my phone um but i'm trying to think of other like i've had other victories in the past few weeks in court but i just yeah, and I won that Daubert hearing, going back to that, and I ended up, we settled the case that afternoon, and we're a firm that takes cases to trial, that's what we do, although, you know, almost everything settles these days, 
and we settle the case if it makes better sense for our client to settle the case than to try the case. And in this in this case, it, it just made, we won so big at that, or I won so big at that Daubert hearing that it really pushed the needle in the settlement direction. And so that, that felt pretty damn good. Um, so I really want to kind of explain explore this question of um, Dave's analogy to the heroin user in the public school. Um, I just got to find what, what doesn't sit right with me about that. Um, hmm. Yeah. I just, maybe I don't like the parallel to, using heroin to being, I guess, an illegal immigrant in a country. I mean, the whole concept of that, just, I don't know what, what it is that doesn't sit right with me. Um, so I'm going to hit the hay. I got to call it a night. This was kind of a scattered episode and I hope you didn't have too much trouble following it, but there's another issue that Dave brought up about how libertarians have to have Fuck, maybe I'll talk about this for 10 minutes. Um, how libertarians have to have their own cultural identity um, or else they're irrelevant in today's culture war. And he made this comment because Dave's turned into a cultural conservative um, after being a socially liberal for so long or after being just, yeah, a cultural liberal for so long. And the problem is, is that Libertarians don't have a shared cultural identity. Um, so I don't know how we can propagate our own cultural identity if we don't have one. Uh, and that's because, like Dave would say, libertarianism is a thin philosophy. It's the non-aggression principle and private property rights. Um, and I would say being anti-war too, although I've, in the past I've met radical like more radical minarchists or ANCAPs who are actually kind of pro-war um, recently too. And it's strange, but um, I, I disagree with Dave. I mean, I, I don't think that libertarians do have a shared culture. Um, maybe we do on, on certain thin issues in terms of, preferring individuals over collective. Um, but again, that's only prescriptively. It's not descriptively, um, hearkening back to like episode one of the Liberty weekly podcast or episode two. No, it's definitely episode one talking about, um, using the term collect collectivist terms to describe and to prescribe it's okay to describe, but it's not okay to prescribe using collectivist terms. Um, but what is the shared libertarian culture? I mean, we all come from different places in the political spectrum. We all have those in innate cultural, maybe leftisms or rightisms and, and different feelings that go beyond the scope of what libertarianism can talk about. Um, and I don't think it's wrong to do that necessarily, but you, 
I don't think you have this moral leg to stand on when you do it because um, in terms of trying to figure out I mean you you really have no right to tell someone else and maybe that's not what what um, Dave is doing I don't think he's telling other people that they um, need to be a certain way but he's really telling other people that they should behave a certain way and there's no moral imperative behind it that I can find. You have more of a leg to stand on when you say, well, no, it's wrong to use violence or force um, to make other people do what you would prefer them to do. Um, but what's really the stand, what's the leg to stand behind when you, when you say, you know, I really think that the nuclear family unit is the ideal living situation and that everyone really should have kids because um, families produce libertarian, more libertarian children. Um, I, what's your more authority to say that other people should live that way? Not that they need to live that way, um, but that they should live according to your individual um, preferences, I suppose. And, and that's why I really... I don't talk a lot about my thickisms on the podcast because I, they're just my own little believies, you know, and I have lots of people, I mean, specifically in the, the, uh, discord and among some of my Patreon subscribers is that they have very different cultural or, or ideas about things that are thickisms in my opinion. And like, I don't, I don't know how you can tack it on to libertarianism and that's fine. Like I've, I really, um, I think it's great that people believe what they believe, but, um, I've tried to engage on it. And I just don't have much to say about it. Like, I know what I think, but I, on that same level, I, I don't, it doesn't necessarily matter to me what other people think. It's like, um, if someone's an atheist, I'm like, okay, that's cool. But, uh, I don't, I don't know why I would, or, you know, what would be their imperative to try and convince me to also be an atheist? Because, um, on some level, I don't really care what other people think unless what they believe they're trying to force on me in some way or use it to as a justification to aggress against me um so anyways that that was one thing that dave was kind of like i understand that we need to have some kind of shared libertarian culture and try to use that to engage in the culture war um, everyone is convinced and they say it is a truism that politics is downstream from culture. Um, I don't necessarily think that's an end all be all, but they take it to mean that we really need to engage in the culture war, which I don't, I don't know. I think we just take that for granted. But I, I think we do need to be involved in the community and to try and get our ideas out there in some way, shape, or form. 
and maybe that's the culture war these days. Um, but a lot of us also, I found a lot of uh, joy and enjoyment and out of interacting with, I found a clan of libertarians and some ANCAPs in my community here, and we're, you know, we're working on the uh, Libertarian Party, a, a county, a tri-county level Libertarian Party, and I've found a lot of um, benefit. That's one of the reasons why I haven't been super active on the podcast is because my Libertarian energy is going towards creating this new organization um, with with other with other real people in the real world that don't just exist beyond a keyboard and it's been pretty damn beneficial and i guess maybe the point of us doing it in part is to influence the culture in a libertarian way but we you know to do some reflecting on that too and be like okay well what does that mean what is the shared libertarian culture that we're trying to push everyone in the direction of um yeah i don't know what that is you know, in amongst our group too, it's some conservatives, some more liberal people, um, and a lot of people in between that. And what is that? Uh, practically, functionally speaking, how many shared traditional or shared core values do we have aside from, you know, the belief that other people should be able to be free to do whatever they want? Um, as long as they don't hurt anyone or affect anyone in that way. So anyways, well, I hope you appreciated this, uh, impromptu episode kind of rambling a little bit, but doing a lot of verbal thinking. Uh, that's kind of what I do here. So, um, I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know, um, patrick.mcfarlane at libertyweekly.net. And uh, I'll try not to let so long lapse between my next episode and still trying to get that Patreon bonus content out there. Hopefully this almost an hour um, was enough to hold you over, at least until I do that. So, peace.